0: scripture reading for today comes from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated and uh, good morning. Welcome again to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, We are continuing our sermon series on lament, and we are in week three of four. Uh, We started off by looking at the cause of lament in Genesis 3, human rebellion against God, sin, the fall of mankind, the fall of creation is what led to everything that's wrong in the world now, everything that we lament. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 88 and talked about the pain of lament and how we cry out to God in our pain, He can handle it. Even when we feel no hope, it's victorious just to utter a cry in God's direction from our pain. This week, we're talking about the prayer of lament. Now, strictly speaking, last week was also a form of prayer. A crying out from the deep dark valley uh, is a prayer, Uh, but the emphasis was more on our experience of pain and our uh, perspective on our pain. This week, uh, we're kind of assuming that, you know, we've already expressed our pain to God, but now what? Uh, maybe now we're, we're asking God for something. We're praying to God more specifically. Not just, I'm in pain, Lord, but now, Lord, would you do something about my pain? The, the prayer from a place of lament. And to help us understand uh, the prayer of lament, we're going to uh, Look at Jesus. You know, Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, uh, but he also showed us how to pray with the prayer of Gethsemane 20 chapters later in Matthew 26. And so as we look a little closer at our passage and the prayer of lament, we'll have three points. Uh, The first is the humanity of prayer. Second is the external prayer. And the third is the internal prayer. And so let's begin with our first point, the humanity of prayer. Now, I want to say from the start that there are, you know, many forms of prayer. And our sermon today really just focuses on one, supplication. Because that tends to be the most relevant form of prayer when we are in a moment or season of lament or grief or pain. Um, But I'm almost hesitant to focus only on that form of prayer because often the form of prayer we're naturally drawn to, um, because basically supplication is just asking God for things. But there are many other forms of prayer as well that we should be seeking uh, to incorporate into our prayer lives, like adoration, you know, praising God for who he is, or repentance, confessing our sins, turning away from it and back toward God, or thanksgiving, you know, giving God thanks for what he's done. So all of those, you know, are forms of prayer that would also be worth looking at. They may come a little less naturally to us than supplication. Um, So at least from the start, I wanted to say that supplication, humans asking God for stuff, is a form of prayer that's probably overemphasized naturally. But when you're lamenting, when you're grieving, when you're hurting, it's a form of prayer that you need. It's the form of prayer that Jesus prayed when he himself was sorrowful Um, If you have the booklet, I put the reflection quote at the bottom from Hebrews 5-7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And so if supplication is what Jesus needed, it's what we need too when we're sorrowful. And so again, supplication is a form of prayer where we're asking God— help. We're asking God for something for yourself, for others, for the world. Uh, you know, when you pray something like, Lord, would you give me favor in the eyes of this hiring manager at this job I really want? You know, but that, that's a prayer of supplication. Uh, or when you pray, Lord, I, I pray that you would give me peace even if I don't get this job. That's a prayer of supplication, asking God for something, asking God to do something. And that's what's happening in our Matthew 26 passage. Jesus is praying a prayer of supplication. He is asking his heavenly father for something. He's asking his heavenly father to do something. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and his arrest and crucifixion are imminent. And so he prays. And so let's take a closer look at how he prays. Uh, verses 36 and 38 say this, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So like I said, it's the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested, and ultimately killed. And he knows it. And so he's sorrowful like anyone would be. And so he goes with his disciples to Gethsemane, uh, but then he asks nine of them to stay put, while he goes a little bit further with just Peter and the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John. So you nine stay here, James, John, Peter, come with me, let's go a little further. Now, why does Jesus only bring the three of them? Why only Peter, James, and John? Well, there's likely a theological reason, and then a practical reason. So the theological reason, first, uh, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John only. Do you remember any other moments when the three of them got exclusive access to Jesus? The transfiguration. Matthew 17, when Jesus went up on top of a high mountain and was transfigured. You know, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared. And a voice called out from heaven, God's voice, and it said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And, you know, long story short, the purpose of that experience was for Peter, James, and John to see that Jesus truly was the son of God. Meaning that Jesus was God. He was truly God. The transfiguration demonstrated Jesus's deity to Peter, James, and John. Now back to the Garden of Gethsemane, again Peter, James, and John are given this special access, but this time there's no Old Testament heroes, there's no bright shining light, there's no voice from heaven. Instead, Jesus just confides in them, "My soul is very sorrowful right now, even to death. I'm so sorrowful I feel like I'm going to die right here right now." Will you remain here. Just watch with me. I, I just need you guys to be with me right now. Can you do that? Do you see what Jesus is demonstrating to Peter, James, and John now? The transfiguration demonstrated Jesus' deity to them, but here in Gethsemane, he's demonstrating his humanity to them. You know, this is referred to as the hypostatic union Jesus. One person within him are both deity and humanity united he's truly god he's truly human so here in gethsemane his humanity is on full display which we need to see because we are human And so how jesus prays right here is infinitely valuable for us jesus shows us the humanity the humanness of prayer Which leads to the second reason why he invited Peter, James, and John, the more practical reason. Uh, He invited them because in his humanity, Jesus needed to share his sorrow with a few close friends. You know, notice he doesn't share this moment with everyone, you know. He doesn't share it with everyone he knows. He doesn't share it with all 12 of the disciples. He shares it with three people, three disciples. He also doesn't share it with no one, right, keeping his sorrow all to himself. He shares it with three of his disciples, three of his closest friends. And so for us, when we're sorrowful, when we're needing to cry out to God in supplication, we should be sure to share our pain with a few others also so that they can support us, so that they can pray with us and pray for us. You know, if if you have no one to share your sorrow with, you know, it's an issue that you should be working to resolve Uh, It's also an issue if you go around sharing your pain with anyone and everyone. You know, when Jesus, the human of all humans, was sorrowful and troubled, he picked three people, three of his closest friends to share his sorrows with. If you're human, then you too need a few close friends to share your sorrows with. So who would be your three or so close friends if you were sorrowful and needed support, needed prayer? You know, for me, when I've been sorrowful and in need of support, I have about five people that I tend to share things with. Uh, First would be my wife, but not only her. Uh, There's also my best friend from seminary, and then I have three really good friends from high school. Those are roughly the first five people I share my sorrows with. Who would it be for you? You know, if you can't think of anyone, uh, who do you know today that, could one day be that type of person for you, one of your inner circle of close friends. If Jesus needed a few close friends in his sorrow, then you certainly do too. And it's not just you who needs a few close friends. Some of your friends may need you to be the one who's a close friend, who they can share their sorrows with also. If Jesus needs this, then we all need this. But of course, Jesus didn't only need his friends. Uh, He needed them, but he needed more than them as well, which is why he himself prayed to his heavenly father. Verses 39 through 42 say this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Then he goes on to find the disciples sleeping again. He returns a third time, prays the exact same prayer again. Now, I want to point out a few things from this scene of Jesus praying. First, Jesus prays to his heavenly father, which may seem obvious or not worth mentioning, but I want to make sure we don't miss what is happening in prayer. We're talking with our heavenly father, like a child asking a parent for something. So are we asking our father for something? Prayer isn't just some superstition. It's not random. It's not like playing the lottery. It's communication in the context of a loving relationship between a child and a parent. That's why Jesus begins his father, his prayer, my father. That's why he teaches us to pray in the Lord's prayer, our father in heaven, because prayer is to our father. Second, did you notice his physical position? Verse 39 says that he fell flat on his face and prayed. I don't know about you, but I don't, often imagine Jesus flat on his face praying, but that's what this passage says Jesus did in the garden. He fell on his face to pray. So this wasn't some, you know, dead ritual prayer. He wasn't just checking off boxes on his prayer request list. Jesus's entire being was consumed in this prayer. His soul was very sorrowful, and so his body went flat on the ground to correspond with that. Because You're a body and a soul, a united being. You're not one or the other. You're not more one than the other. You're a whole human body and soul with thoughts and feelings, with a heart and a mind and hands. And so when you're grieving or mourning or lamenting or calling out to God, your whole being is involved. You know, we all experience this differently. Sometimes you may not need to tell your body to respond to your sorrow. It just does naturally. Or other times, You may feel turmoil internally, and it could be appropriate to consciously position your body to match it. Go to your knees, bow your head, lay flat out. Again, you know, prayer is a very human activity. It involves all of you, your whole being. And then finally, notice that Jesus prays repeatedly. He prays the same prayer three times. He prays... And he goes and finds the disciple sleeping. Then he goes and prays a second time, basically the same prayer, slightly reworded. Then he goes and finds the disciple sleeping again. And then he goes and prays a third time, saying the exact same words again. Jesus is praying this prayer repeatedly. Now this is actually something that challenges me. Yeah, you know, I like to joke that my favorite verse in the Bible is Matthew 6 7. Jesus says, and when you pray and do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. I like to keep my prayers short and to the point. And obviously, there's good reason Jesus said that. He goes on to say, your father knows what you need before you ask him, so you don't have to prove your sincerity by being overly verbose. But still, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus repeats the same prayer three times. His father knows what he needs before he asks, but Jesus still prays the same prayer three times in a row. I think that's encouraging. It's okay to pray the same prayer over and over and over again. It's so human to pray, feel unsatisfied, and then need to pray again, still feel unsatisfied, and again pray the same prayer to petition God over and over and over again to just be real with him. You know, if even Jesus felt the need to repeat himself to his heavenly father, then you will too sometimes. Your heavenly father will gladly receive you each and every time. So Jesus prays to his heavenly father. He's flat on his face, and he prays repeatedly. Cues that we could take from him and how we can pray the prayer of lament. It's a very human prayer. Now, we've mostly been talking about how Jesus prayed. But what about the content of Jesus' prayer? What did he actually say? What was he actually praying? What was he asking God for? Verse 39 says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. That's his prayer. He prays it three times. And you you can kind of break into two points, two parts. The first, let this cup pass from me. And the second, not as I will, but as you will. Let this cup pass, the cup of God's wrath for sin, crucifixion, the forsakenness that Jesus was going to experience on the cross. Let this cup pass. But second, not as I will, but as you will. And each of these represents two indispensable parts of our prayers, of our supplications. We're going to look at each one of these in the next two points. And so let's move on to our second point now, the external prayer. Prayers of supplication have two purposes. There's an external prayer and an internal prayer prayer, and they are both present in Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane. They're also both present in the Lord's prayer. Uh, so in Gethsemane, the external prayer is, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, and the internal prayer is, yet not as I will, but as you will. In the Lord's prayer, the external prayer is, your kingdom come. You know, there's so much wrong in this fallen world, but God, make it right. Make your kingdom come. That's the external prayer, and then following line, your will be done. The internal prayer. From the Lord's Prayer. So you could summarize these as the external prayer saying, put the world right, God, and the internal prayer saying, align my heart with yours, God. And so Jesus' external prayer in Gethsemane is, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Change these external circumstances, Father. You know, asking his Father for something. In the uh, the five years after I Graduated from college. I worked for a campus ministry and everyone who worked for that campus ministry had to fundraise It's a missionary organization. There's no central funding or source of revenue And so it's completely funded by donations And so to join the staff of this campus ministry I along with every other staff member would have to fundraise and we would do this by meeting in person with people and sharing about our ministries But before that meeting could end there was one crucial step we had to ask them if they would support our work financially. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, thank you so much for your time this evening. Before I go, I wanted to ask you, would you consider supporting me financially at something like $100 a month or any other amount? And then I would shut up and wait for them to answer. Which was the hardest part, because waiting for a response seemed to take forever. Being quiet so that they could answer was excruciating you know after and actually after working for this ministry for a couple of years i became a coach who trained people how to do this and i would always emphasize the point you need to ask the question and then shut up so that they can respond to your ask and the reason that this requires such emphasis is because it's uncomfortable to ask for money it's audacious to ask them to give you money and so what we want to do naturally was to ask the question and then approximately one millisecond later start talking again and give them an out from actually having to answer. I mean, if it's okay, if you can't, uh, you've already been so kind, I'm sorry to even ask. Actually, I'm just going to go. And so I always had to emphasize with myself and with the people I coached, ask the question and then wait for an answer. Just shut up. Let them answer. Sometimes the answer was yes. Many times the answer was no. And We knew that it was audacious even to ask, but we still needed to wait for an answer. Jesus, in our passage, also makes an audacious ask. Father in heaven, you have known since before the foundations of the world that in your wisdom and your love and your plan for salvation, you're sending me as a man to die on the cross to forgive the sins of the world. Can we do it another way? Could this cup pass from me? What an audacious prayer to pray. What an audacious thing to ask of God. Is it possible for there to be another way? And he doesn't even suggest another way because there is no other way. He knows that there's no other way, but he still asks, is there another way, God? Could you change my external circumstances, God? So Jesus is showing us that we can pray with audacity. And if Jesus, who knows that what he's asking for isn't going to happen, like actually knows it because he's God, not just a person who thinks he knows, he actually knows. And if even Jesus asks for what he knows isn't going to happen, then how much more so can we ask for things that we think aren't going to happen? Because we don't actually know what's going to happen or not happen, right? What's impossible with man is possible with God. And so ask Ask audaciously. Pray audaciously. Pray the external prayer. God uses prayer to change history. Do you believe that? Do you believe that prayer can change the circumstances of history? You know, I often find myself not believing that. I often find myself believing, incorrectly, that the main purpose of prayer, maybe the only purpose of prayer, is uh, changing my heart. The internal prayer, which we're going to get to. And obviously, that is a crucial part. Scripture teaches that prayer uh, does change our hearts, but Scripture also teaches that prayer actually changes circumstances. Like, it really could be used by God to change your circumstances, not just theoretically, not just hypothetically, but really, in God's goodness and wisdom, he has decided to make the world susceptible to your prayer. He's sovereign over the world, which means he's sovereign over your prayers also, and he can choose to use your prayer if he likes to, and he likes to. James, uh, in the book of James five sixteen through 18, says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed f- fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain And the earth bore its fruit. James is not saying here, pray so your heart changes. He's straight up saying, pray so that something external like rain changes. Prayer is powerful. It can actually accomplish things, it can make the world right, it can heal diseases, it can raise the dead. Cynical people, like me, tend to reason that if God is sovereign and going to do what he's going to do anyway, then there's no reason to pray. But that's man's logic, not God's logic. The scriptures, like James again, James 4-2, they reason differently. You do not have because you do not ask. It is true that God is going to do what he is going to do. And what God is going to do is not give some things until you ask for them, or whoever asks for them in prayer, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his goodness, in his love. That's how he's chosen to operate. He's made this world susceptible to our prayers. And so let's pray. What should you be praying for? And that's not a question I'm going to answer for you. It's a question for you to answer for you. What should you be praying for? What have you not been praying for that you should be praying for? What seems so audacious to ask of God that you just don't ask at all? I think that seasons of lament or grief or mourning bring out Kind of these all-or-nothing reactions. You either turn away from God and ask for nothing, or you fall on your knees, you pour your guts out to him in desperation. And there's, there's rarely an in-between in these seasons of lament. And now, often when an all-or-nothing situation comes up in my preaching, I carefully and with nuance explain how there's some sort of balanced approach. There's a middle way, a third way, but not here, guys. I think Jesus shows us that if it's all or nothing, the all reaction is what you need to go with. You don't have to find a middle ground. Go big. Ask audaciously. Fall on your face. Ask from your desperation. Ask anything. You know, Ephesians 3.20, one of my favorite verses, says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all you could ask or think. Which means you can't out-ask God. You can't even imagine to ask for things that God might do in response to your prayers. And so ask. God, I'm in pain. Won't you heal what's hurting me? Won't you make the pain go away? Won't you let this cup pass from me? Won't you do the impossible in my life? Won't you make this world a little less fallen and a little more like your kingdom? Is there another way than what I'm facing right now? From your lament, ask anything. Pray the external prayer. But from this passage, we also know But the reality is, sometimes we ask. We ask audaciously. We ask again. We ask another time. And God still doesn't do what we ask. He doesn't give what we asked for. So what do we do when that happens? What did Jesus do when that happened? That takes us to our final point, the internal prayer. Like I said before, There are two parts to Jesus' prayer, the external prayer and the internal prayer. The external prayer was for God to let the cup pass from him, but the internal prayer was, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This lines up the Lord's prayer, your will be done. Jesus essentially saying, God, what I want and what I'm asking for is that this cup passes from me. But even more than that, what I want is what you want. Ultimately, what I want is for your will to be done. That's what I want. And that is a hard prayer to pray, right? In Jesus' case, after he prays that prayer, we read what the answer to his prayer is going to be, right? Verses 45 and 46 of our passage. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He's about to be betrayed by Judas and arrested, which will ultimately lead to his death on the cross. Jesus prayed that that would not happen, that there would be another way, and then immediately he got his answer from his heavenly Father, no. The cup is not going to pass from you. There's no other way. Which is why we also need the internal prayer. Your will be done, not as I will, but as you will, because sometimes the answer to our external prayer is no. Jesus got a no, and sometimes we will too. That's why we need that internal prayer. Nevertheless, God, not as I will, but as you will. Align my heart with yours, God. Help me to trust you. Help me to submit to your sovereign will. What you want is ultimately what I want which is a hard prayer to pray. It requires a lot of trust, requires a lot of humility. To pray that admits that God knows better than you what should happen. In, uh, in chaos theory, there's something called the butterfly effect. And the general principle is that small causes may have large effects. Uh, The name butterfly effect comes from a metaphorical example um, uh, that, uh, you know, perhaps something as seemingly insignificant as a butterfly flapping its wings could completely alter the timing and path of a tornado. Uh, A butterfly flapping its wings could be the difference between a town being destroyed or not. And this idea comes up a lot in popular culture. Movies like Back to the Future or the not-so-subtly named The Butterfly Effect And uh, how this idea is often explored is having some character travel back in time to change something small that they think will make everything perfect in their present. But then when they return to the present, they realize that that small change had way more unintended consequences than they anticipated. And now things are actually worse off because of the change they made. And the point is that life the world the universe is so complicated and so complex that we should have no confidence that we know exactly how things should be or should go now in a world with no god the butterfly effect is horrifying you know your decision to set your alarm for 6:45 instead of 6:40 could change whether someone dies in a car accident or not if you know If you think about it too much, life becomes unlivable that way. To believe you really have that much power, that every decision is life or death. I mean, you shouldn't get out of bed in the morning, except that's a decision too. That's also life or death. Which is why it's such a grace that there is a God, and that he is all-wise, and all-knowing, and all-powerful, and all-loving, because we are not those things. And that's what the internal prayer acknowledges, right? It's saying to God... Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, because we're not God. You are. It's a way that we acknowledge that we can't see every possible scenario or cause and effect. We are not all wise. We're not all knowing. We're not all powerful. We're not all loving. But God, you are those things. And so help me to trust you. And so that's why we pray the external prayer. God, from my vantage point, this is what I want. This is what I'm asking of you. This is what I think you should do. But it's also why we pray the internal prayer. Yet, yeah, God, I acknowledge that I'm finite and my vantage point is limited. You, on the other hand, are infinite in knowledge, love, power, wisdom. And so at the end of the day, we should go with not what I think, but what you think. So do you see how you need both the internal and the external? You need both forms of. Of prayer. That's the only way to grow in grace, to deepen our relationship with our Heavenly Father, to trust him more and more, is to pray both. You know, if you pray only the external prayer, then you don't really trust God fully or recognize just how big a gap there is between your vantage point and God's. But if you only pray the internal prayer, then, you know, you don't, for one, do what God tells you to do, which is to ask But also you miss out on the intimacy, the the vulnerability that you're meant to have with God. You you miss out on a chance for God to actually answer your prayer with a yes. You also miss out on those sweet, kind of delicate moments where God comforts you when the answer is no. You need both. You need both the external prayer and the internal prayer. So just a, a quick example of how you can start incorporating these kind of prayers in your lives and where you can find them even in scripture. Um, Psalms 4 and 5, they're back to back. It's easy. uh, Reverse order though. Um, Psalms 4 and 5, they're described as a a morning prayer and an evening prayer. And the way they work is like this. Psalm 5, the morning prayer. This is more of an external prayer. Um, Makes sense. You start off your day. You begin by asking for the the day to go in such a way. You You go pray to God and you say, God, you know, Will you do these good things throughout the day? Will will you let those who are evil and do deceitful things be cast away from me? Protect me from them. Let them receive the punishment they deserve. But uh, for those who take refuge in you, Lord, would you lead us into righteousness? Would you let us sing songs of joy today? Would you bless us today? In an ideal world, that's the hope, right? That evildoers would receive just punishment and that the righteous would be blessed. And so Psalm 5 is a very external prayer to begin the day. Let the world be like it's meant to be, God. Psalm 4, it's an evening prayer. It's more of an internal prayer, which makes sense, right? At the end of the day, you look back at it, and you ask God to align your heart with his to accept what happened, no matter how short of your morning prayer it fell. Uh, Psalm 4 says things like, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. You know, there's the sweet spot where we can be angry about what went wrong in our day, what went against what is righteous, uh, but we don't get so angry that we fall into sin. And we instead give it all to the Lord. Trust Him with it, and the psalm ends appropriately In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. A morning prayer and an evening prayer, an external prayer and an internal prayer. Now that's the path toward lying down and sleeping, to resting, to trusting that the Lord and the Lord alone will make you dwell in safety. Now just uh, one final thought as we wrap up. Uh, I want to make sure we look one more time to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at his lament, look at his grief, look at his sorrow, Uh, Luke's account actually says that he began to sweat blood. He's flat on his face. His friends are failing him. He says he feels like he's going to die right then and there before he even gets to the cross. He's having an anxiety attack or something, and he's praying a prayer repeatedly to his heavenly father. Let this cup pass from me. A prayer that God answers with no. That's got to be the most difficult no that the Father has ever given, and it's got to be the most difficult no that anyone has ever heard from God. No one has ever deserved a yes more than Jesus in that moment, and yet he got a no. Which means that when we pray, however righteously, however justified we are, and what we ask from God, if we receive back a no from him, we can know for sure that Jesus has been in that exact same situation before and worse He knows what it's like to plead his case before God over and over again and hear no. So he's the perfect person to sympathize with us when we hear no. He's been there. He knows what it's like and worse. But also, don't lose sight of what the Father was saying about reality by saying no to Jesus. And what Jesus was saying about reality, by, by receiving that no and responding, your will be done. For a moment, the possibility of Jesus not drinking the cup of wrath, skipping the cross, leaving all of us in our sin, was being discussed. And it's a butterfly effect moment. One moment, one decision with tremendous impact on the rest of history, the rest of reality. And the all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful God looked at each reality, one where Jesus doesn't go to the cross for our sins and all of humanity is condemned for eternity, and one where Jesus does go to the cross. He does drink the cup. And a way is made for anyone to receive forgiveness of sins and salvation and eternal life. The Father sized up both of these options. Jesus sized up both of these options and determined that no matter the cost, it would be better to save you than condemn you. And so for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The cup, the cross were worth enduring because of the joy that it brought Jesus to get you. Of all the possible outcomes, that was the one he chose. He aligned his will with his father's will. He chose to get you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us, your son, a humanly example of what it's like to cry out from the place of grief and lament how to pray. He taught us how to pray. He showed us how to pray. Father, we ask that we would incorporate prayer more and more into our lives, that we would be honest with you and ask you for what we really want, knowing that you're a good father who likes to give good gifts, but that we would also pray, Lord, that your will be done, acknowledging that you are God and we are not, and we cannot see the full reality best. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves and trust you more and more. And most of all, Lord, we thank you for your son who chose to die for our sins, for the joy that was set before him. We pray this in his name. Amen.